Hello and welcome to the podcast of Vineyard Church here in Maryville, Tennessee. We post our Sunday messages here each week, as well as our conversations episodes, which include interviews, special announcements, and in-depth teaching. You can visit vineyardchurch.us to learn more about us or to access the audio archive. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. And now, here's the episode. Well, if you were on a white sand beach somewhere, or ski slopes, you know, Zane's here, so ski slopes somewhere or or whatever, or if the whole time change just really messed with your mind and you couldn't make it last week, I'm going to give a little bit of a recap of what we talked about, the end of chapter one of the book of Galatians that's going to lead us into our message today of chapter two. At the end of chapter one, there had been false brethren that came in and gave a false message to the church in Galatia about the Apostle Paul and the gospel that Paul had taught to them. They've accused Paul of being a coward in some ways. They've accused Paul of being a people pleaser, saying that he watered down the gospel in a way to gain the approval of the Gentiles in the church or to make things easier for the Gentiles in some way. And that wasn't a right thing to do. The argument was this, to say that the Gentiles do not need to be circumcised, or they don't have to abstain from certain foods, for example, that goes against Torah. And anyone wishing to follow Jesus should, like any other righteous Jew, they should adhere to the law. And so at the end of chapter 1, Paul is defending himself and the gospel that he taught to the church in Galatia. And he does this by first saying that the gospel that he received is not man's gospel, but it's God's gospel. That he received this message, he received this gospel directly from God. And so outside of a little two-week period of time where Paul was in Jerusalem meeting up with Peter, getting to know Peter, and this uh, very quick introduction to James, the brother of Jesus, Paul didn't sit down and learn the gospel from any of the apostles. So the message that he's trying to convey to the Galatians is because this message was given to him by God, they can be assured that it was a true message, that it was the true gospel. It's not Paul's own version of the gospel. It's not Peter's version of the gospel. It's not any man's version whatsoever. It's God's. Therefore, the message can be trusted. He goes on at the end of chapter 1 to give further evidence that when he spoke this gospel in the regions of Syria and Cilicia to the Judean churches, where they were predominantly Jewish churches, Jewish believers, that they did not question what he taught. In fact, the only thing they really had to say is that they were simply amazed and they said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And it says that those Judean churches, those Judean believers, glorified God because of Paul's teaching. And that now brings us to chapter 2. And what we're going to see here in Galatians chapter 2 is a continuation of Paul's defense of what he had been teaching. But what can be gleaned from this section 
is really good stuff. And it's not just for the Galatian church and the churches of Paul's day. And you got to remember the makeup of this Galatian church. You got a mixture of Jewish and Gentile believers. So there's a message for them then, but there's also a message for us as the church as well today. So we're going to dive in. First two verses of chapters 2 say this. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now there's a debate on Paul's second visit here to Jerusalem. Remember that his first visit was kind of the 15 days that he spent with Peter. Now years and years later, he goes back for a second visit. And the debate among theologians is when is this meeting actually recorded in scriptures, in the scriptures? Some believe it is what we read in Acts 15, which is a little bit more knowledgeable scripture. That's the, that's the famous meeting between Paul and the Jerusalem council. Others believe the visit is earlier and that it's what we read in Acts chapter 11, which may be a visit that's a little bit more unfamiliar to us. But here's the story. Barnabas had been sent from Jerusalem to the church in Antioch. Because the leaders in Jerusalem had heard that the Antioch church had brought in many believers. And so they uh, send Barnabas to Antioch to do the work of ministry there. He does great kingdom work there. Uh, he, the church grows. And so he goes to Tarsus, grabs Paul, brings Paul with him back to Antioch. And for about a year, they minister to the church in Antioch together. The church grows Acts 10 even tells us that the church in Antioch was actually one of the first churches where believers are called Christians. But the church is thriving, and it's Jewish believers and Gentile believers together as the church in Antioch, much like we know in Galatia. Now, Paul in Galatians 2 speaks of a revelation, that he returned to Jerusalem because of a revelation. And many believe that this revelation is speaking about something that is talked about in Acts chapter 11. In Acts eleven twenty-seven, it tells us this. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now, I want to stop here for just a moment to say this. Whether this visit is Acts 11 or whether it's Acts 15 isn't really the big deal for this message today. We're not going to try to solve that issue. But I want us to take a look instead at how the early church operated. From the very start of the church, one of the greatest things that we see in the early church is how they helped those in need. We see this even earlier in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2 verse 45 speaks of the very first formations of the early church and tells us that as they, and they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had 
need. And we're seeing the same thing now with this young Christian church in Antioch. A famine has been prophesied and it is said that it's going to come. It's time to gather the resources because there's going to be a need that's going to be happening. But I think what's even more impressive to me is not just the pooling of the resources for the Antioch church themselves, but the pooling of the resources in particular for other churches that they would send these resources to. It wasn't just for them, it was for others as well. See, although there may be subtle differences in the way things are done from church to church or what the makeup of a church from one church to another may look like, there's still this family atmosphere amongst the Christian church, a family viewpoint, if you will, between the churches. When it came to helping those in need, the church was a family. They were working together to care for one another. My time here at Maryville Vineyard is going on about 18 months that I've been on staff here. To be honest with you, I'm still blown away by the fact that I'm even on staff here and that I get this privilege of serving you guys and walking alongside you guys in the capacity that I do. But I want to tell you this, my love for this church goes well beyond 18 months. So I want to tell you about the moment I fell in love with Maryville Vineyard. Here's the moment that I fell in love. I was actually on staff at another church. This was years ago. We're talking 15, maybe 16 years ago. And I had met Aaron and Sharon because the youth group that was here way back then did an event with the youth group where I was on staff at called the 30-Hour Famine. And so the youth groups got together, and they did this 30-hour famine together. And you know, when you're doing something with a different church, you kind of have to spy out the other church. So I checked you all out and learned what you guys were all about and what's this whole vineyard thing and, and learned a whole lot about you all. And there was a story that I was told about this church. This was back in the days when you were in Friendsville, if, you, if some of you can remember that far back. But I heard, heard about this event you did. It was a free haircut night for the community. Some people in the first service remembered this. And if I have the story correct, you brought a number of people that, that knew how to cut hair, so it was professionally done. And you, you came in, and they came in, and they cut hair. And you were like, you put it out into the community there in Friendsville and beyond and said, if you want a free haircut, come get a free haircut. And whoever comes, I guess that's who come. You had hundreds of people come to get free haircuts. A lot more than you anticipated came. But you stayed for hours and served the people in the capacity that you did. And one story in particular that really grabbed my heart, I can't remember if it was Aaron or Sharon that, that shared this story with me, but there was a single mom who brought like her seven or eight kids with her. And they all got free haircuts that night. And they were all served at the church that night in many ways. And I just think solely of even the economic impact that that would have for that single mom and her family. How much money that night she saved in getting all of her kids free haircuts. I was completely blown away. Not just by the creativity of the event, because that's pretty creative, 
but the number of people that were served by this church in one night. I combine that then with ministries that we have around here that we do all the time. People that have been served through our ministry of the box, people that have been served both locally and beyond with must-have gifts that we do at the end of the year. Just a reminder, we're having a church service day on April 22nd. We do that every single year. Keep that on your radar. We're going to be going out into the community in different capacities and serving with different ministries. This church is about serving people. It's about serving people. And Gene and I would say to one another, we've said this for like 20 years now, where I've been, a, where I've been part of other, on staff on other churches. I'd say to her, you know what? If I wasn't on staff at this church, we'd be going to Maryville Vineyard. Because that's the church I want to be a part of. And so now it blows my mind that we're absolutely here. And I, I, think, I think this church serves as a family because of the early picture that we see in the book of Acts, people giving and serving those in need. So this revelation that Paul has been given to help those in need is the reason why he and Barnabas go to Jerusalem. But also while there, Paul gets a moment to proclaim the gospel to those who were quote-unquote influential apostles. Who were, we're talking about Peter, James, and John here. Those were the big wigs in Jerusalem. They were kind of known as the pillars of the church in Jerusalem at the time. And Paul's reasoning to give his gospel message that he gives to churches like Galatia is that he wanted to do it in order to make sure I was not running or I had not run in vain. Now, in saying this, Paul is not worried that his message is incorrect in any way. Not worried about that in the least bit. But what Paul doesn't want to see happening in the church is any kind of division. And when you have churches like Galatia and churches like Antioch who have both Jewish and Gentile believers, the last thing that Paul wants to see is all the Jewish believers huddled over here and then all the Gentile believers huddled over here and there's a division or a gap in between them in some way. He doesn't want to see that. And if that's the message that the Jerusalem leaders are giving, then he's saying that the ministry that he's trying to lead and he's trying to bring forth is really in vain because that isn't Paul's message. Paul is all about the church being united together. Paul hinged much of his message on the aspect of unity in the church. And whether the person was a Jew or a Gentile, a man or a woman, free or slave, rich or poor, doesn't matter. He wanted the church to be united. He wanted the church to be one. And here's the key. They're united. Every single one of them is believers. They're united because of the work of Jesus Christ. That's why they're one. The work of Jesus. And that's Paul's message. Some even believe that Paul and Barnabas brought Titus along with them almost as a litmus test for the Jerusalem leaders. Because how would these guys look upon a man like Titus who is a Gentile? He was Greek. Would they demand, once they saw him and knew that he was a believer, would they demand that he be circumcised? 
or would they agree to what Paul refers to as the truth of the gospel? And we're going to come back to their answer, which is in verse 3 here in a moment, but I want to skip forward to verse 4. It says this starting in verse 4, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. What is Paul speaking about when he says the truth of the gospel? Well, what he means is that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then comes the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer, through those things, the powers of the old age and death have been defeated. And a new age has now been born where believers have been freed from their slavery of sin and they are now one in Christ and they all proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the truth of the gospel. If we recall the exodus from Egypt in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel had been waiting on a new exodus from their captivity. In their minds, it was captivity of the Romans. They wanted to escape Roman captivity. But through Jesus, it's actually an exodus from the captivity of sin and death. And this holds true for all people that declare Jesus as Lord. Then, as well as today, for us. So for now, those who are allegiant, or who are allegiant to Jesus, they were, we are the church, we are the family of God. Whether Jew or Gentile, man or woman, rich or poor, etc., etc. No distinctions anymore when it comes to that. Our oneness is in Christ. So in Paul's words, because we are one, because we have been freed by the blood of Jesus, there is no need with the Gentiles for any kind of requirement of circumcision or food laws, any of that kind of stuff. And if you're looking upon a man like Titus and you come in the side door and says, that man needs to be circumcised, that man needs to follow the law perfectly. They're simply wrong. They're simply wrong. And we see Paul say in verse 5 then, to them we did not yield in submission. He's not going to give in to this point so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. Remember the makeup of the churches in Galatia. Jewish and Gentile believers. Paul's message, you are one through your allegiance to Jesus. Any circumcision has already been made by Christ. It's a circumcision of the heart. Paul's theme of unity resides in many of his letters in the New Testament. Just one example is Ephesians chapter 4. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Church, we are to live together in unity. Yes, 
There are unique differences among us as individuals. And Paul addresses that in Scripture. How those unique differences are a good thing for the church. When it comes especially to spiritual gifts and talents and how we're supposed to use those things for the betterment of the body. But we are the same in our oneness in Christ Jesus. His death and resurrection has brought forth a circumcision of our hearts. And we are to be brothers and sisters in Christ united as the church. Jesus is the basis of our unity. Now, the pillars of the church, James, Peter, and John. How do they take to Paul's message here? So back to verse 3 and the answer. Verse 3 of Galatians 2. It says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Then it says in verse 6, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. That's just Paul getting his oneness unity message in once again. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Meaning, they had nothing more to say once Paul said what he had to say. He's not missing anything. He spoke truth. Goes on to say, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. The answer, Paul, what you're preaching and what you're teaching is the gospel. Continue your work and your ministry reaching the Gentiles. And that, for that matter, any Jewish believers that are in the church as well. Teach them of the freedom that is found through Jesus Christ. Freedom from sin and death. Teach them of the new life and the new purpose found in this relationship with Jesus. Continue to bring unity to the church. Continue to have the kingdom of God grow. Now for Paul's defense, going back to the whole piece of the, of the reason why he wrote the letter to the Galatians in the first place, to have the pillars of the church in Jerusalem be in agreement with Paul's message, that's a big deal. Because what that then says is these, these false brethren who are coming in here saying I'm wrong, saying that I'm watering down the gospel, saying that I'm pe- a people pleaser, they're wrong. They're just simply wrong. What I am teaching you is the true gospel. Believe that. Believe that. Unity, my friends, is a hallmark of the church. When unity takes place in the church, the church thrives. I unfortunately can't tell you the number of times I've seen church doors close over the years. And if you do like a a backwards timeline and try to find reasoning behind why that church ultimately had to shut its doors, much of it was due to disunity, either within the congregation but especially within the leadership of the church. 
Psalm 133 says to us, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. The ideal Christian community is one of true brotherhood. Jesus taught this. Jesus is praying in John chapter, 20, John chapter 17. He says in verses 20 through 23, I do not ask for these only. He was lifting up prayers to his disciples. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. As believers in Christ, as the church, we are to be the reflection of the unity between God the Father and the Son Jesus, who have been united for all eternity. Unity in what, you might ask? Unity in our allegiance to Jesus and the purpose of glorifying God in all that we do. And it's in that way that others are going to see that Jesus Christ is Lord. Hence the reason Jesus says twice in this prayer that the world may know that you sent me. The church thrives when it's united. And how our unity in our allegiance to Jesus is revealed to this world is through how we love and how we care for others around us. Through our purpose and through our mission. So if we go back to Galatians 2, there's one final thing that is said to Paul from the leaders in Jerusalem. They say to Paul and Barnabas in verse 10, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. I kind of see this line, it's probably not, but I kind of see this line as a laugh line for Paul. It's like he's going to the Galatian church and go, guys, they didn't disagree with anything I had to say. And on top of that, you won't believe what they, what they asked me to do. They asked me to remember the poor, which is what we've been doing all along. We've already been doing that. We've been eager to do that. So there isn't anything said to Paul that he didn't already know. When I look at the verses, with these verses in chapter 2, I think it's an incredible reminder for us as a church of not only what the true message of the gospel is, that Jesus Christ is Lord, his death and resurrection have saved us and freed us from the chains of sin and death. We've been ushered into this new age to join God in the renewal of all things. That that goes for every believer in Christ, man, woman, and child, Jew, Gentile, anyone, any believer. But along with communicating this message to the world and teaching the truth of God's word to the world, we are to Love and care and serve for those in need around us. Jesus' ministry while on earth not only included the incredible teachings that we read in the Gospels, but he healed the sick. He cast out demons. He fed multiples that were hungry. Teaching and serving walk hand in hand with one another.
And I would encourage us as the church, when we wake up each and every morning, when you wake up each and every day and realize that God put breath in you so that you can breathe, so that you could live today, that you would then, that we all then, would look forward to the opportunities that God brings along our paths each and every day to help and care for those in need. Whether that's feeding someone that's hungry, praying for healing over someone who's sick, extending a helping hand to someone who needs it. Listen, I encourage us to, to, to fight against the false message that I believe society is bringing. Here's the false message. Just take care of yourself. Just take care of number one. That's all you need to worry about. I think that's a false message. I think the love and the care and the serving that God gives to us through our relationship through Jesus Christ is to extend well beyond ourselves. To our family, to our church, to our community, to the world. Can't wait to hear the stories of what this mission team did in the DR. That's God's love and care extending, reaching to the ends of the earth in a way. Those of you who know me know how much I hate bringing my daughter into my sermons. That's pure sarcasm. Unfortunately, Hannah has heard her name way too many times in way too many sermons over the years. And so for the next couple of minutes, she's probably just going to lower her head over there, pretend like she's praying. But my daughter, I would say, is a typical 14-year-old teenager. I'm not too sure if that paints a good picture or a bad picture, but she's a typical 14-year-old teenager. Uh, I'm not going to get into the specifics to save her any more embarrassment. Uh, I've probably already done enough. But if you would allow me to boast for a moment, but I want you to take it the right way. I'm not bragging about my daughter when I say what I'm about to say. I'm actually boasting in what I believe God does through her. So please hear that as this. Hannah has a pretty awesome group of friends, both in school and outside of school. Um, And sometimes they do typical teenage girl kind of things. They get together, they spend time together, they talk about whatever teenage girls talk about. I just shut my ears down and let my wife deal with all that. But there have been, on more than one occasion, where Hannah gets together with her friends, and maybe they go to the mall, or maybe they go to a restaurant or something like that to grab a bite of eat, and they, and they just, everywhere they go, they're together. They're like a five-year-old soccer team. If you've ever seen them, they just all run over here, and then they all go over here, and they're just all in their little holy huddle kind of thing. They're one. They're one together. And when they go into a store or when they go into a restaurant, they all want the same thing. So they go into a store and they all buy the same thing. They go into a restaurant and they all order the same thing. Now, here's what happens sometimes. There's been times when one of Hannah's friends may not have the means, may not have the money to spend... On what, every, on what everyone else is getting. And Hannah has this keen sense of recognizing that. 
And it's in those moments that I see Christ in my daughter. She's a very quiet individual, but in these moments, Christ shines like no other time. She doesn't take no for an answer. No questions asked. She's going to help her friend out. And she's going to make them feel a part of everything, just like all the other girls that are there with her. And I do want to say this. This goes beyond just her friendships. She's done this with total strangers, where she's just wanting to be helpful in that way. And I'm not blown out by her desire to do this, but I'm blown away by the zeal she has to do something like this in those moments. Because she does it in a way where she doesn't, this isn't about her, she doesn't want to be seen, she doesn't want to make a big deal of it. She just wants to use the kindness that I'm convinced came from her relationship with Jesus. Because i got to confess this, neither her mother and I sat her down and said, this is how you need to be. It's just, it seems natural. But it comes out of a relationship from Jesus. And it's how a relationship with Christ can move a person to care for someone else. She is one 14-year-old individual carrying out the purpose of walking with Jesus and loving our neighbor, which is the vision that we have here at Vineyard. And think about this. If each of us carried out that vision and purpose as individuals and then together as family units in our community and in our core groups that, we ha- that we're a part of, and then in the fullness of us as a church body, when we're united in that purpose to walk with Jesus and love our neighbor, the impact on the kingdom of God is incredibly significant. And we're going to see lives changed. We're going to see lives changed. So let's be mindful of the needs of those around us. And let's be willing to step up and help when we can. Amen? I'm going to invite Lauren to come up for our time of Selah this morning. And for our time, there are two things that I just want to lay on our hearts today to be prayerful of. First, that as a church, we need to be praying for the unity of our church. Now, I say that, as I say that, I'm not saying that we're not united. We are. I look at the people in this congregation and the leadership of this church, and there's, there's an incredible unity amongst us here when it comes to mission, vision, purpose. Our enemy is not happy about that. He, he's, he's not happy. And he's in the shadows of the valley like we talked about in Psalm 23 before. And he's ready to attack. He's ready to lash out. He's ready to strike. Because the last thing he wants to see is our unity leading to further the kingdom of God and to further the gospel in this world. So we, as the body of Christ, need to be prayerful Always be prayerful that we be one in Christ Jesus, that we be united as a congregation 
as the leadership of the church. So be praying about our unity, that it would continue, that it would continue to grow stronger and stronger and stronger. There's no limit to that kind of strength. And then second, I want you to pray about how, perhaps ask yourselves, what are the needs, what are the burdens of the people that God has put on my radar? That God has put on my path. And as an individual, as a family, or as a church, how can I use the resources that God has given me? They are His, by the way. But how can I use the resources that God has given me to care for others around me and to love our neighbor? See, my hope and prayer is that we would all have the attitude of Paul that we see in verse 10 of chapter 2 of Galatians. I don't know if you caught the word. Read it again. Only they asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. I pray that we would all have a zeal, that we would be eager to serve and love and care for those around.